Hello everybody and welcome to Radically Normal. On today's episode titled Demons and Deity, Michael and I will discuss how Jesus heals a man with a demon, how Jesus feeds the 5,000, and lastly how he walks on water. I hope you guys enjoy this discussion. Hey everyone, hope you're doing well. An episode or two ago, we talked about a simulation and how there was a study out about how there's a 50-50 chance that we're in a simulation. We, we cast some doubt on that, but it kind of popped up in the news once again. So Nate Silver, uh, if you follow politics at all or stats at all or anything, you'll, uh, you know he's uh, a political analyst, data analyst, and uh, he was tweeting on the night of the election and he tweeted, if there's a 269 to 269 tie with the electoral votes, then maybe it's a simulation. Just kidding, I think. And then Ross Douthat, who I think is Catholic, but he's a he's a cultural commentator for the New York Times. He quoted Silver's tweet and said, if I have one professional goal, it's to get smart people to stop using it's a simulation to describe the manifest power of Almighty God. And I thought that was really ironic and humorous, given that we had just talked about a simulation. And then I scrolled down today when I pulled up the tweet again, and a guy who tweets by the name of The Common Toad and has a toad or a frog as his picture replied to that replied to Douthat and said, Ha, I have noticed that many who think of the notion of God in an afterlife insane will, when the idea of a simulation comes up, light up and say, yeah, that wouldn't surprise me at all. And so I just thought it was funny that the idea of a simulation popped up again in politics and in the news. You know, for me, I think it's it's always easier to think of simulations in terms of the matrix, but, you know, Nate Silver does a lot of good things with 538, <laughs> but given uh, the lack of success of his of his polling numbers, you know, Maybe smart guy might be a, a lofty title title for for him. <laughs> I don't know. He he's had but, some uh, great he's had some great. Uh, I mean, the reason he was famous is I think he projected forty nine out of fifty and then fifty out of fifty states in two thousand eight and two thousand twelve or something. Um, but five thirty eight does seem to be more accurate than a lot, as he did give Trump a much higher shot in the election in twenty sixteen than most polling services were willing to give him. Yeah, I think he gave like a twenty seven percent chance or something. Anyway, I think it's. I think it is really interesting to think of a simulation, though, and, and how uh, people might, might actually consider that, like we talked about it a few episodes ago, like you said. But, you know, it is interesting when you see it in social media or whatever and thinking of, um, you know, different conversations people have. But, I mean, thanks for, uh, you know, uh, pulling, pulling that up from, you know, our conversation from a few weeks ago. But how have you been besides that? I've been pretty good. We're now recording this for the second time, and so we don't usually record on Sundays, but today was a great day so far. Went to church, Sunday school, got Brahms, and now I'm sitting here with Andre ready to record again, and I have my Brahms mint chocolate tip shake. So I got to say it's doing pretty. I'm doing pretty well. How are you? Yeah, man. You know, Sunday's a Chipotle day every single Sunday, <laughs> and, you know, also, Sunday night is a steak night, so I'm really excited for, for tonight as well. It's, it's always a good day for food. <laughs> yeah, it sounds really good. I don't know what my dinner is looking like, although I know it will be inferior to, to steak. But I will say, I'm ready for Mark 5 and 6. I have been thinking about this passage a lot, and even, even in church today, we weren't talking about this. But just the fact that I've been studying this and looking at commentaries and just spending time in Mark, uh, I've been thinking about this a lot. So do you want to go ahead and jump in and kick us off in Mark 5 and just sort of uh, get us going here? Yeah, man, for sure. Uh, so, you know, thinking of chapter five on its own, it's really interesting. We see, uh, we get to see a couple miracles, which is really good. Specifically, uh, we see Jesus healing a demon, and then we see him uh, actually uh, bring someone back from the dead, as well as heal someone's sickness. Uh, it's like a, they had like a bleeding disorder type thing. 
Um, so I think it was really cool just to see how uh, through these three different stories of different miracles that we see in chapter five, we see clearly how um, Jesus has, you know, he is over, he rules over and has dominion over uh, three specific things, which are demons, death, and sickness. And we get to see Jesus show his, the, you know, believers as well as the apostles, um, how he is over these things and how these things cannot, um, you know, cause harm or cause sadness or, or death or sickness while he is, you know, ruling over it. Um, and we see as soon as he comes onto the scene, situations become resolved, calm comes, and things that typically destroy and cause so much harm in people's lives uh, seem to vanish instantly. And we see a restoration of that, um, especially, you know, even in death. So that chapter five was really cool. But yeah, do you have anything uh, to start us off with Jesus healing the man with the demon? Yeah, so I just think right off the bat, they come to the other side of the sea. It says in verse 1, to the country of the Gerasenes. This was on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, uh, in the just from the Palestine or the Palestinian area, the region of Israel. And then so the story immediately starts with uncleanness or uncleanliness. So you think about they're in the Gentile land, they're outside of the Holy Land. And then starting in verse 2 and 3, they come to a man from the tombs who's been living in the tombs. And so if you're familiar with Numbers, or you've read Numbers, or you've read some of the Old Testament, you might know that this would have been some sort of pollution or uncleanness. Because in Numbers 19, it says if you're polluted by tombs, you need to isolate or purify yourself. And if you don't, you're to be cut off from Israel. Not just like, oh, a little bit of discipline. You're cut off. So this is important, and we see that Jesus is entering into this space of um, impurity, and he's going to do some great things. For sure, man. And, you know, as we see um, in verse 4, where it says that no one had the strength to subdue this man who was possess- being possessed by by demons. And we see later on that there's, you know, potentially thousands of demons, um, you know, taking over this man's, like, bodily functions, I guess. And, uh, you know, just his mental and, and physical abilities to function. And it seems clear that <clears throat> he's kind of a lost cause with like, you know, his city, like you said, um, he's been banished from regular social life, but we see that Jesus comes straight onto the scene with, you know, <clears throat> no fear or worry of anything. And we see that the demons immediately obey him and, um, are subdued and, you know, they're, you know, pleading with him, um, to like, you know, please not cause them, cause them any harm. I think that's really crazy how, when, you know, someone thinks that the situation is lost and everyone around them also thinks it's lost. But, you know, Jesus has power over that situation and, you know, over what's going on. And, you know, I think that's like really comf- comforting to to remember that, you know, even in the, in the worst of times, uh, when it seems like no one has an answer for us or, you know, everyone around us thinks that, you know, we're a lost cause or the situation is a lost cause, um, Jesus steps in and is the answer and the solution to that. For sure. And it's super interesting because in chapter three, we saw that the unclean spirits fell before Jesus and said, you are the son of God. That was the first time anybody had identified him correctly so far in the gospel in this account in Mark. And then we saw in chapter four, what characterizes parables often, not just that they're a simple story that depicts the truth, but that they're often not understood. And so nobody understands what Jesus is saying about himself in the kingdom of God. At the end of chapter four, he calms a storm and they say, who is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? So there's so many questions around identity, 
But then when he goes to the legion, when he goes to the man with this demon right here in chapter 5, we see in verse 7, they say, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. So they know Jesus' kingship, and they know that he is... uh, associated with Yahweh, that he is God and that he is going to have this authority and power over them. And they are, they know something that nobody else in the story knows at this point. And that's extremely evident in the fact that, you know, they're begging to, um, once Jesus takes them out of the man to, you know, for him to let them, uh, go into these pigs that, you know, are nearby. And it's just super interesting to me, Seeing like the difference between you know as we see how these demons act when it, when when they're around Jesus compared to the everyday person or the people we see in the stories, especially because we see the demons pleading and begging with him, whereas we see other people you know kind of like begging and pleading with Jesus for him to leave. It's so interesting how you know in the story, um, you know the the people got it kind of back backwards, and the demons are the ones like you said they correctly identified him, and now. They're the ones begging and pleading and, you know, asking to be spared. For sure. And so they, I just think it's super interesting because so far we've seen just a little bit of this, but Mark starts to be, Mark or just the story begins on to take this more militant aspect or tone for we, we see that, uh, the demon replies, my name is Legion for we are many. A Roman legion had control of the Palestinian-Israeli area there. A legion had around 5,600 soldiers, though anywhere from four to 6,000. And so that we see that the demonic power is like a military. And so that's very interesting how it's very serious and militant. But then I also just find the story super funny because then they just ask to be sent into pigs and then they go and die. Like, yes, that's a terrible economic loss for one random guy or somebody who owns these pigs. But uh, overall, I'd say it's pretty funny. Just some demons running into some pigs. For sure, man. And, you know, the last interesting thing I see in this section is how typically we had seen how Jesus, after performing a miracle or healing someone or something along those lines, he would tell, you know, the person involved, like, not to tell anyone. But here he clearly says go and tell your friends how much the Lord has done for you. Um, at the end of the section, we see that. And that's super interesting to me, especially when considering, uh, like you had told me about, you know, the, the geography that we see at the beginning of, of the chapter and how um, potentially this is a, a different location. And there's not as many implications when it comes to uh, what the government might think in terms of Jesus being kind of like trying to overturn the government or, or something like that. Yeah. So it's, He's, he's in a Gentile territory, so there'd be less Jewish military or uh, patriotic expectation of their, their Messiah being some sort of political ruler who's going to rule with the rod of iron that's uh, prophesied in Psalm chapter 2 that we're not going to see fulfilled until Revelation 19 or near the end of the Revelation. So then he tells him, go home and tell your friends, tell them all. So we see this man with the personal encounter. He gets to go tell them all, but it's interesting that other people are afraid. So the, the the other people there, they see the man's been restored, they're afraid, but the one that's had the personal encounter with Jesus is not afraid. And so one thing that I learned uh, from a scholar named Richard Hayes, highly recommend his work, is he talked about how the beginning of Mark 1, and, and I mentioned this then, echoes Exodus 23. John the Baptist is a voice of judgment, but also a voice of, hey, we're going to the promised land. And uh, Hayes talks about, so just as the gospel comes into the world in the person, words, and work of Jesus, 
It's like going into Canaan, and in going into Canaan, what they do in Joshua? They went to battle. And so it's like Jesus is coming into the land, leading people of faith into this promised land, and he's going to battle against people in the land. And who's in the land? That's the demonic power. So Jesus is going to war against the legion and against the demons in the area. For sure, man. And like you said, that the person who was, you know, clearly in the in the most uh, close uh, proximity to, you know, being affected by the miracle that Jesus performed, um, the same we see the same thing happen in, in the second section here of chapter five, where Jesus heals um, a woman who, you know, is, you know, gravely sick, as well as bringing someone back from the dead. We see how the person who is, you know, directly impacted and who Jesus directly interacts with, how they are the ones who are, you know, exemplifying great faith. And we see that they're the ones who are the most affected and most want to be near Jesus and are most, you know, accepting of, of the mercy and the grace that he's, he's giving them in the situation. Exactly. So as we move away from the Legion story and into the next section, we're encountering another sandwich of Mark, like I've talked about before. So we're going to see the part about Jairus's daughter. Then we have a little midsection. You can think of like the middle of an Oreo. Uh, with the we have the menstrual hemorrhage and then we move back into the story with Jairus's daughter so we have this sandwich theme right here and we're going to see that again also in chapter 6 and so in verse 22 one of the rulers of the synagogue comes to Jesus this was not like a professional pastor worship leader type of person you might be thinking of actually they're just a lay person who had a lot of trust in the community they oversaw the teaching and the communal gathering of the Jewish body Uh, Here, So this is just a ruler of the synagogue comes to Jesus and he says, my daughter is uh, sick and near the point of death. Will you come? And we don't get much dialogue here from Mark. Mark doesn't tell us much. Don't know if Peter didn't tell much when he was writing it down, but just says Jesus went with him. Going into, you know, the delicious middle part of the Oreo, (laughs) much different from the, the, the ruler of the synagogue who has a lot of confidence in his approach to asking for Jesus to come in and, and help his situation. We see now a woman who, you know, Jesus, you know, prescribes to her that she did, uh, you know, have faith. But we see that she's a little more timid. And instead of like going right up to Jesus and asking to be healed, you know, she kind of sneaks up behind him and thinks to herself, if I just touch his robe, maybe I too can be healed. And she has faith that she will be healed by just, you know, touching the corner um, or the smallest piece of, of his um, of his clothing of his robe, and I think that this is you know really interesting how how she, you know she just feels and has so much faith that you know just by touching Jesus she might be healed and uh, she may not want to like directly ask and she might think that you know maybe she's a burden but you know Jesus assures her that you know because of her faith he's going to heal her and that she is healed and you know he you know he really is um, you know very understanding and you know, very happy and very joyful in actually healing her and, and, you know, kind of expresses to her that she doesn't need to, you know, just, you know, sneak up behind and and he's okay with the whole situation. Yeah, it's very possible that she was associating Jesus with God or at least as some sort of ruler. And we see that she has faith. So this is certainly true. But I was reading in one commentary about how it was thought that rulers may be able to heal. Like people, uh, it's recorded, people would like go up to Alexander the Great Maybe you've heard of him if you've studied any Greek history or you're just familiar with uh, any ancient history. But people might have gone up to like Alexander the Great thinking that like his clothes could potentially heal if they touched him or um, just that he might have some sort of supernatural power. And it also could be identifying Jesus with Yahweh. You think of how the altar would heal you. Uh, We have language with the tassels here echoing Exodus 29, Numbers 15, 
So it's very possible she could have been associating with him in her faith, by the way. What is faith? We know that Jesus is the Son of God and has come to rescue us. In her faith, seeing Jesus as God potentially here. For sure, man. And one interesting thing that you pointed out to me the last time we recorded that, you know, I just want to, <laughs> I think is, it was it was pretty interesting and, and want to point out before uh, we go back to Jesus healing the the daughter of the, you know, religious ruler of the synagogue who, who had died, um, is that, you know, Jesus is kind of on the way to this, to healing this, this, uh, this young girl and kind of on the way, it seems like is, uh, passes by, by the crowds and, and the woman who, who he heals and all that. And so it kind of like shows how there's, you know, just a multitude of miracles going on. And, you know, he's kind of just passing through and people are, you know, following him, crowding him, asking for miracles, being healed, uh, seeing like the wonders of, of his ministry. And I think that's really cool. Yeah, I think that is really cool. And it's very interesting how the dialogue starts as we get to the bottom piece of our Oreo sandwich here, because there are pe- the c- people come from the ruler's house and say, your daughter's dead. Why are you bothering this man? Man, they don't know what's coming yet. And that's why Jesus says, don't fear, just just have some belief. So they come to the, the house and what happens first? They laugh at him because he says, the child's not dead. They're just sleeping. Just like in sleeping, you're about to wake up. Just like the... Uh, and now this girl's dead, but she is about to wake up. And, you know, I didn't really see this in any commentary, but the part where it says the child is not dead but sleeping, um, I thought was very interesting. What what I did see is that, you know, the girl definitely was dead. But this specific verse was very interesting to me because I was thinking, you know, why does it say she's just sleeping? And, you know, one thing that I thought potentially could be happening here is that, as we had seen in the other two examples, you know, as soon as Jesus even comes onto the scene of, of what we see to be something that seems like a lost cause, it instantly becomes resolved. So I was kind of thinking like, you know, maybe as soon as Jesus stepped foot into this house where, you know, this, this girl was dead and, you know, he had the intention of bringing her back, um, uh, to life and, you know, revealing his, his power over death. I think at that point, you know, she was already healed. And then he, you know, he tells him, you, you know, you guys just missed it. She's, she's just sleeping. She's already, she's already back from the dead don't worry, I'm here, I've solved this issue, I'm over death, death has no rule over Jesus, and, you know, he tells him this, and then he tells the girl, you know, arise, get up, give her something to eat, and, you know, he he, uh, brought peace to the situation. Don't you just love how personal his invitation is to the girl? Little girl, I say to you, arise, she gets up, and everyone's amazed, and Luke is known as, like, the gospel of amazement. We see the people clinging to Jesus's words. People in Luke often appear to be amazed, but here, I just feel like the gospel authors are telling you, wherever it is, here in Mark, they're immediately overcome with amazement, it says at the end of verse 42, and so I feel like they're kind of, he's saying, hey, you might not have been there, and I am just telling you this story, and I know you're just reading this in a letter or in a book, but you should be amazed too, and so this is an amazing story of a miraculous raising from the dead. Uh, the only difference being that a resurrection for this girl means that she one day is going to die again, but the resurrection of Jesus means that he never dies again and he reigns. So there is a difference in resurrection, uh, but this is an amazing story. And so now we get into chapter six. Do you want to jump, kick us off here? Yeah, for sure. So we we first get to uh, chapter six with, a small story of, of <clears throat> Jesus going back to his friends and family. And we see how this impacts him and how uh, he is received. And one thing that I found uh, very interesting about this section is where, where Jesus says, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. 
I thought it was very interesting how, you know, Jesus comes back to the place and the people who, you know, he feels the most comfortable with um, from the time before his ministry, but quickly is questioned. And, you know, he is, you know, he's just surprised. It says that uh, he marveled at their uh, disbelief. And I just find that to be super interesting how um, where he believed that, you know, would be a, a safer place. It turns out that that he found that that was a place where, where people were going to question him even more. Yeah, I think it's interesting because you think about like LeBron wins the NBA Finals or somebody wins the World Series or somebody wins the Super Bowl and then you return to your hometown and what's the reception? It's crazy. They have a parade. There's a big celebration. Everyone in the city is super, super excited about what's going on if they're a sports fan. And so you would expect Jesus has done all this great stuff. He comes back home and the reception is terrible. And so the people that you would expect to just be in faith and in supreme support of Christ are not at all. And I think what we're seeing here is he could do mighty, no mighty work there. It's not that Jesus or God has no power there. It's almost that faith is some sort of prerequisite. I mean, you think about, I don't remember where the story is, um, certainly in the Gospel of Matthew, but you think about the story, uh, the authorities come to Jesus and they want a sign that he's the Messiah. And he says, you're getting no sign except the sign of Jonah that my body will be raised up that I will die and be raised up in three days. And so we see that they just don't have any faith, um, and he marvels at that. For sure. And, and, you know, that kind of just shows, as the three examples you saw in chapter 5, how those people had faith, and that was a characteristic that kind of tied them all together. But here, as we see that, you know, Jesus had um, experienced this disbelief between the people who he thought he was uh closest to and you know friends and relatives as it says and along with you know this uh knowledge that he shares with the apostles he also we also know that they have been equipped with his teachings the parables um and he also it says equips them with um the ability to have authority over unclean spirits so he gives them miracle powers and you know now he's going to set them uh off the he's going to set the 12 off and you know he you know prepares them and tells them you know when you're not um received well um you know it's okay shake the dust off from your feet uh, as a testimony against them but you know now he's sending the apostles off and you know now they're equipped with with these different things that we've seen jesus um use for his ministry in the you know first four or five chapters of, of mark yeah it's crazy how radical or how different it is to say if they don't receive you if they don't listen to you when you leave shake off the dust uh, that's on your feet as a testimony against them. That's verse 11. Because typically when the Jews left Palestine, when they left the Holy Land, they would shake the dust off their feet when they returned because they had been outside of the Holy Land, the Holy Ground. And so the fact that they could go to a town, a Jewish town, and pronounce it unclean by shaking the dust off is just a complete 180 because it's saying that there's a possibility that even though the people are of the seed of Abraham in the sense of their genetics and their genealogy, that doesn't mean that they're going to receive their Messiah well, and that's what really counts. And so here we're going to see another sandwich. Jesus is sending off the disciples. Then we have this little intermission where we see the death of John the Baptist, and then we get back to the disciples when Jesus feeds the 5,000 and he is walking on the water. And so now we're, I guess, back in the Oreo, the second part, the stuffing, definitely the best part. Double stuffed is the best. And now we have John the Baptist. So we haven't heard about John the Baptist in a while, but Andre, what do you see here? And, you know, we see, we know how important John the Baptist was. So it's really interesting here how we see how he plays a role in what's going on now. 
we see that now clearly, despite, you know, Jesus telling people don't tell anyone, or, you know, we saw an example where he did tell someone to go and tell someone of his miracles and the work he's been doing. No matter, you know, what the case is, we know that, you know, the word's getting around and now King Herod has heard of Jesus and we quickly see a discussion of, you know, who is this Jesus? You know, so far we've only seen that the demons have identified him correctly. And now we see that uh, the king is wondering and, you know, people are talking and, you know, the rumor on the street is this is Elijah or this is John the Baptist raised from the dead. And we see uh, where it says John the Baptist raised from the dead. And you might think, well, what do you mean raised from the dead? Well, we get to see the story of how John the Baptist was actually killed. Yeah. And it's interesting that there are parallels uh, uh, between John the Baptist's death and Jesus' death. You think they, they're both, there was a, both a political tyrant there. We both, we see that both were innocent and that they were righteous. And it's interesting that Herod fears John, verse 20, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man and he kept him safe. Because it's interesting that when people have proper faith and an integrity and a holiness about them, that will threaten the tribes around them. Whatever tribe that is, whatever tribes, plural that is, there will be a threatening there because the people who belong to Jesus and to the truth will be distinct from those around them. And so I think that there's a parallel between John the Baptist's death and Jesus' death. And so the meaning of the sandwich that I was talking about is that John's death is in the middle here and where we have two ideas about mission and discipleship on, on both sides of the Oreo. And so this is showing a relationship between discipleship and death. Is every disciple going to die for the name of Christ? No. But some are, and the other ones are called to, as we're going to see later in the season in Mark 8, to take up their cross daily and follow Jesus. So there's a relationship between discipleship and death. For sure, man. And like you said, you know, John the Baptist was unwilling to give up his integrity. And we see that, you know, he said, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And, you know, he wasn't willing to, um, you know, let that go and, and, you know, say something different, despite, you know, that maybe being what... um, the rulers wanted to hear, uh, but we see that, you know, as you said, there was a fear that John the Baptist, because he was had integrity, because he was righteous and, and you know, had favor with God, that they didn't want to do anything wrong to him. But, you know, we see first opportunity that comes, um, John the Baptist's head ends up on a silver platter. And, you know, as unfortunate as that might be, um, you know, his, uh, the fear that they had of him only, only went so far, but as soon as um, it was asked of, of, of the king to bring to kill John the Baptist, um, he took his chance and, and, you know, John the Baptist ended up dead. So the apostles figure this out. They learn this. They've done some things. They've cast out the demons. They've gone away on mission. They come back to Jesus and say, hey, this is what we've done. And this is verse 30. You can imagine them all riled up. Jesus, we cast out this demon. You won't believe this story. We fed uh, this this homeless man. Uh, we healed this person. We shared the gospel of the kingdom with this person. And Jesus is probably like, yeah, this is, uh, this is the mission. And so then he says, though, completely different from what he had been telling them, come away by yourselves. What, Andre? Yeah, yeah, no, Jesus. Jesus, you know, he quickly says, slow down, slow down, slow down. Uh, you know, let's take, let's take a minute and, you know, we're going to, we're going to chill. Yeah. It's interesting how, so we're in the feeding the 5,000 story. I think it's the only miracle recorded in all four gospels, clearly echoing Exodus 16, God feeds Israel in the desert and second Kings four, Elisha multiplies the loaves. And in, uh, in a greater sense here, so does Jesus. And so what's significant though, is they don't get to be desolate for a long time. They don't get to be away for a while because these people 
Come, there's a great crowd and he has compassion on them, verse 34, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And so why is this significant? It's not just that they were uh, abandoned and they didn't know God. It's also that Jesus is pointing himself to be the uh, restorer of Israel, the good shepherd for Israel. The the good shepherd of John 10 is not recorded in Mark, but this is clearly echoing Ezekiel 34. God says, I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep in Exodus 34, 15. And then in Exodus 34, 23, he says, I'll set up over them one shepherd, my servant David. And Ezekiel prophesies after David, so we know he's not literally referring to David, but somebody in David's line. And so we're seeing that Jesus is this Davidic king, this Davidic shepherd, who's supposed to care for his people, supposed to guide Israel, supposed to guide the the nations into relationship with God. One thing that I did see here was, you know, thinking back, like you said, to you know, Israel in the Old Testament and the connections here um, and how, you know, Jesus is using bread to feed them and how, you know, um, Israel, when they were in the desert, you know, God provided them with bread, you know, to sustain them. And one difference that, you know, that I see is that um, when, you know, they were in the desert, you know, they weren't supposed to take more than, than what they needed uh, for food. But here, when we see that, you know, Jesus, uh, you know, supposed to five bread and the two fish, um, you know, we see that there is, there's excess, there's extra bread and fish afterwards. Um, after he multiplies, you know, it's not just what they needed to, you know, to be satisfied with their hunger, but you know, there's extra bread left over. Um, I thought that was very interesting. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I think it's very interesting. I think that we're seeing, and I, I can ask you this because it's not, it's not, for, for certain, I'm more speculating, but it's possible that in the Old Testament, we're saying, hey, this physical bread is not going to satisfy you or help you endure for eternity. But Jesus is saying, I'm the bread of life and there is eternal satisfaction to me. So I think it's interesting that there are extra loaves left over. It's like he says in, in John 6 here, he says, my father gives you the true bread of heaven, the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And so if we come to Jesus, we'll never hunger and we'll never thirst. And I think there, do you think there's something here potentially about how in Christ now there's an abundance of life and food? I think so. And I agree because now, you know, the main difference is, you know, Jesus is on the scene. Um, I think also Jesus is showing how, you know, these like earthly uh, things that satisfy us, such as like food, um, we also see, you know, the first thing the disciples ask when Jesus says to feed them is how much money are you expecting us to spend? Um, and, you know, you know, Jesus like honestly just dismisses their question about, about money. Um, so we see these things about like the, our earthly um, needs and like things that, you know, satisfy our hunger or, you know, money, that kind of thing. Jesus is showing you like, you know, I'm over that. You don't need to worry about that stuff. I will supply you with what you need and, you know, there will be excess um, now that, now, now that he is here, uh, how he supplies for us is far better than how we could supply for ourselves. Oh, for sure. And he does. He doesn't just supply a few people. God can supply everybody. Verse forty-four: Those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. Where this is a gender-specific Greek noun, and we know that in Matthew it says that men, and this doesn't include the children and the women. So it's easily can easily be said at least 15,000, close to 20,000 people there. This is a lot of people. And so right after this story, we see him make his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side. And so he goes on the mountain to pray, and now they're out at sea. So what do you see here? 
you know, I thought it was, I thought it was really interesting how the disciples were scared when, you know, they first see, um, Jesus or, you know, it says that uh, they thought it was a ghost. I thought it was so interesting how, you know, they were scared and later on we see how their hearts were hardened. Uh, I thought this was very interesting, especially with all the miracles that they had seen and witnessed and, you know, the, the fact that, that Jesus had equipped them to go out and, you know, spread, uh, his name. And now we see that they're, they're afraid. Yeah, it's really interesting. So th- it was between 3 and 6 a.m., I'm pretty sure, about the fourth watch of the night, it says in verse 48, and he meant to pass by them. So this can just seem like some isolated story in the text, but it's really significant. So Richard Hayes, who I mentioned earlier, he talks about how in Job 9, it says God walks upon the sea as upon dry ground. If, you, if you're taking the Greek translation of the the Hebrew Old Testament. And then in verse 11 of Job 9, it says, he passes me by. And pass by is also the same verbiage verbiage that we see in Exodus when uh, Moses says, God, show me your glory. And it says that God passes by him. So that this event here now in Mark 6 is displaying God's majesty and divine glory in Jesus because of Job saying, it's God who passes me by, it's God who walks on the sea, and it's God that passes by Moses. And who does Jesus, what does Jesus say to them? Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Who's it is I? Who's I? It's I am who I am from Exodus chapter 3. And our response in the presence of God, or Jesus' response to our uh, fear, is do not be afraid. So the presence of God uh, brings comfort. Yeah, and, and we see that as soon as he steps on the boat, the wind ceases. And then we see again, you know, how in amazement they are about what what they had just witnessed with, with Jesus feeding the 5,000, as well as uh, seeing him appear as a ghost on the water. And, you know, now it seems like they're just a little bit confused and they continue to be. We, we see that, um, as we talked about before, Jesus had to really like explain, you know, word for word what the, what the parables meant. Um, we see a little bit of confusion there. And then here again, despite seeing all these miracles, um, we see confusion yet again. And one idea that we, you know, keep bringing up is that when reading these chapters, we shouldn't, we shouldn't identify ourselves from an outward perspective looking in of, oh, you know, had I been in that situation witnessing those miracles, you know, I would have for sure not have, have doubted Jesus or thinking of it from the perspective of, of ourselves as being Jesus, you know, being astounded when people don't believe in him as he was with his friends and relatives and, you know, now having to remind his disciples yet again, not to be afraid, but instead we should try to resonate with the people who are questioning, um, who are um, having those doubts and, and making the wrong decisions despite being in that situation. Because as we have pointed out, um, you know, clearly we are in the same place as them as, as being sinners and we no doubt would have made these same mistakes and had these um, same shortcomings as we see the disciples have as well as the crowds and everyone else involved here. So we've now had two seemingly chaotic stories with the storm, and I keep thinking back to what uh, Dr. Moore said in our interview with him, which was about how in Mark or in the Gospels, when everybody is seemingly afraid or upset or confused, Jesus is certain, Jesus is sure, and when everybody seems to be uh, comfortable and okay with what's going on, Jesus gets angry, such as when Jesus storms in the temple and drives out the money changers. But here we see, and just like we saw in Mark 4 where Jesus calms the sea, there's a bunch of problems going on, they're afraid, they think it's a ghost, it would pass me by, it looks like he's going to pass them by, and Jesus is calm and he's telling them, don't be afraid, and I think that's word, word to us that, you know, going, just went through an election cycle, 
we have uh, school going on, maybe work, whatever's going on. And so when we think that things are anxious, it's, it's insanely likely that Jesus is up there in charge and nothing seems wrong to him and everything is going according to plan. Yeah, man, for sure. And then we get to this last little section here of Jesus healing more sick people. Um, this is like you had said before, more of like a summary section, but do you have anything with this before, you know, we finish off the episode? No, I think it's just a summary section. Verse 56, it just says wherever he came. And then it's very vague villages, cities, countryside. Like there's no, there's no specificity. So I think that just like in Mark three, there was like a little snippet summary of Jesus's ministry. I think this is just another one of those. So Mark saying, Hey, I can't write down everything Jesus did in this gospel. And Peter's telling me a lot of stuff. Uh, and I'm, and he's probably thinking that other people will tell you more stuff as well. But he is definitely saying, I can't squeeze it all in, but just know Jesus did some amazing things. And that's all I have to say. Well, awesome, man. Well, I hope everyone enjoyed this episode and um, gained something from this discussion of Mark chapters 5 and 6. And we will see you guys next week. <laughs>